hello there, everyone, and welcome to the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite Murder She Wrote podcast in hours two. I'm your co-host, TJ. I'm Bridget. And we're doing a very special episode this week, which is a crossover between Murder, She Wrote and everyone's favorite 1980s action thriller mystery show, Magnum P.I. Or as my mom dismissively calls it, Magnum P.U., but we won't go there. (laughs) (laughs) Your mom doesn't like it? No, I think it was one of those cases where it was just so hyped and he was just so everywhere that she just kind of instinctively disliked it. Oh, that's amazing because Magnum P.I. is one of my all-time favorite TV shows. So I'm really, really excited to do this two-part crossover episode. Yeah, I don't watch it as religiously as you do, but every time I watch it, I am reminded of why I really like it. So why don't you give us just a brief snapshot of what happens in these two episodes? So the episode begins with a writer named Pamela and two of her friends, Joan and Amy, um, arriving in Hawaii, and they're going to stay at Robin Masters' estate, which is the estate where Magnum P.I. lives uh, as the security guard. Well, he's not more than just a guard, but anyway. Uh, but as they're driving to the estate, they run off the road, and Pamela's convinced someone is trying to kill them, and she is insistent that she get a professional help figuring out who's trying to kill them and why. Uh, and meanwhile, Magnum is like, that's fine. I got things to do. I need to, he's going to Maui to invest in a hotel deal, whatever. And this summary is taking way too long already. That's like two scenes of the episode. Let me try. Yeah. (laughs) So the episode begins with a writer named Pamela and her two friends, Joan and Amy, arriving in Hawaii, where they're going to stay at the estate of Robin Masters, who is another writer who is the owner of the estate that Magnum works at uh, uh, doing security. And the women fear that someone is attempting to take one of their lives. Magnum gets involved in trying to figure out, figure out a lot of things, first of all. Like, we don't really know who specifically this person is after, or, and we don't know why. Um, and we're not even sure who the person is for a long time or who sent them. Magnum eventually decides it's a prof- it looks like a professional hit. So then the question is, well, who hired him? Um, and while Magnum is investigating in episode one, uh, Pamela totally dismisses him and insists that she bring in professional help. Um, and she's a writer. So of course, her, she is friends with Jessica and Jessica arrives halfway about halfway through the Magnum PI episode, descending the stairs to surprise everyone. But in all her beautiful graciousness, she's like, I think there's been a misunderstanding. I'm not a professional investigator. Magnum should keep investigating. And the two sort of work in tandem together, trying to figure out what's going on, eventually leading to Magnum getting arrested for murder and Jessica having to not only get him out, but also find the real killer, which is Pamela's own friend, Joan, played by the inimitable Jessica Walter, um, who set up a bunch of shenanigans because she had... Uh, inherited her husband's company and wanted to do off somebody who was trying to do our, her off so that he could get the company for cheap. There's also some stuff about a diamond heist. It's very complicated. It's very fun. Yes. I mean, it really does kind of function as a two-hour movie, like in terms of just how many twists and turns and, you know, red herrings and plot twists there are. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've seen this a bunch of times, but um, I, I, it really struck me this time that, like, the entirety of the Magnum episode, we have we we have no idea what's going on. Like all of the action takes place in that episode, which is in keeping with Magnum PI. Um, it's a much more action-packed adventure show than 
Murder, She Wrote, which is like a cozy, quaint mystery show. So all of the action happens in that. There's car chases. There's multiple shootouts. Um, it's really cool and fun, but like we actually have no idea what's going on. Who's doing what and why is like not settled at all until the Murder, She Wrote episode when that is all settled. But the consequence is it's an episode of 42 minutes of Jessica just walking around talking to people pretty much all that happens in the murder she wrote episode yep and it's i mean it's really there's so much that i loved while watching these in tandem like the way that they are just each so distinctly their own um in terms of their sort of aesthetic and as you really pointed out like just how one magnum episode is this sort of action-packed quintessential 80s you know kind of tv and then on the other hand of course it's murder she wrote which is much more sedate as you said jessica just walking around i'm not sure that the whole Murder plot really adds up in the end, but I'm here for Jessica Walter, quite frankly. I was going to say, I don't really think that like the motives and the like the motive and the opportunity and the how and all of that really matters so much as the fact that it's Jessica Walter and she's in like this stunning black dress with black jewelry when Jessica confronts her at this ritzy hotel and she's being Jessica Walter. Oh, yeah. And she is owning that role. Mm-hmm. she's acting it to the hilt and she does that throughout the whole you know her t- arc within the two episodes like she's quite the man eater like it's repeatedly emphasized oh, yeah. how she basically will have an affair with anything that's walking including i should point out the bellboy who she tries to tip into giving her like a massage a massage that's more like... than a massage yes there's also a beat earlier when she comes over to Magnum's, um, Magnum lives in like the little guest house, uh, like a, a little private place off the estate. And she comes into his space and lies on his bed. Uh, and she says, how much? And there's a beat where it's sort mm-hmm. of implied that she may be referring to prostitution, like how much to have sex with me. And then she explains that she wants to hire Magnum to be the investigator. So she's just, she's great. She's like, she's a man eater is a great way to describe it. Yeah, she's a regular Blanche Devereaux in this episode. Yeah. Well, I don't think our beloved Blanche would ever set up a hit on people and use guns with silencers. Probably not, but we can't guarantee that. I mean, she is pretty ruthless in her pursuit of, you know, to be the the, the, the leader of the Tinkerbells, among other things. But anyway, I have to say that I really enjoyed getting to spend time with Magnum. I mean, it's not a show that I watch a lot, but I find Tom Selleck just... I'm waiting ever since I watched the show I've been waiting to talk about it on this pod to talk about how much I'm in love with young Tom Selleck I hate the fact that you call podcast pods would you quit interrupting me while I'm in the middle of a thought (laughs) like you know he is just I don't know there's something about his the mustache the chest hair it's all just it's It's just I I would go for a ride on that mustache is all I'm saying and then um you know the shorty shorts Yes. With the dock shoes. He does that quite often with a button down shirt that's open enough for you to see his chest hair. Right. I love the way that the show just openly fetishizes him. Like, I just love. Oh, yeah. I mean, as, as you know, I mean, I'm not. You're the expert on 80s masculinity and television. But I just I love everything about how the show just lavishes so much visual attention oh, yeah. on his body and invites us as spectators to do the same. They absolutely do. I mean, they don't even. There's, there's even like pretense about it. It's like, no, we're literally like there, there was a shot where he's getting up from a chair and the camera stays positioned at butt level. Like we're not even pretending that we're not doing this, right? They just sort of revel in the fact that they're exploiting his body. Yeah. And I mean, it's not just that. It's also the way he's wardrobe, like as you said, the shorty shorts, but it's even when he's wearing like 
pants, which doesn't happen very often, but they're, you know, basically you have to get oiled up to fit into them. They're pretty like, tight. There's yeah. not much left to the imagination. Admittedly, this is the 80s, but still, even so, mm-hmm. it's, I wouldn't say it's egregious because that implies that I'm not enjoying it, but it is quite extreme. Yeah, I mean, when we, when the episode opens, we see he's been working out, so he's in a tank top and shorts and he's totally barefoot. Yeah, but this happens frequently in the show and, you know, the Hawaii setting sort of justifies it. People are often swimming or uh, boating or whatever, and so they're right. scantily clad because it's Hawaii, but um, it's definitely part of the the allure of the show. What what struck me is that um, mm-hmm. it's been a few years since I've watched because I haven't been working on any research related to it in a while, and uh, I was like, "Oh, he's actually not as handsome as I remember. He's not quite. I don't think he's handsome at all." Really, I have the exact opposite. Like as I get older and approach my own you know, daddy phase of life, I find him even more alluring, which is, you know, I guess maybe not what I would expect, but I don't know. I find him just effortlessly handsome. Like I would just, I would, this is a G rated podcast, so I will not like indulge too much in my queer fantasies, but let's just say I have very not G rated <laughs> thoughts about Magnum PI. Well, he does have, I, I love the character and I don't know how much of that is selling himself, but I think the character, he has these like sort of twinkly expressive eyes Mm-hmm. Um, that always convey things. I think that he has just a sort of ease. Uh, he can walk into a space and talk to people, and he's forever getting into trouble. Mm-hmm. We see this in this in this episode. He's he's always getting into trouble. People don't believe him. People underestimate him. And, but he just he also uses that to his advantage so artfully. Sometimes, kind of a total mess up as an investigator. I mean, especially in this because by design, right? He has to suck at investigating in episode one so that there can be an episode two with Jessica. Right. And um, the writers had actually hashed this. This was this this was CBS's idea for this crossover. Um, and the Murder, She Wrote people were like really not on board with it. But at this point, Magnum P.I. had been a phenomenal ratings hit for years and was starting to tank as shows do when they sort of run out of steam in their later seasons. And so since Murder, She Wrote was on such an upswing, uh, CBS thought it would help pull up Magnum's ratings, too. And the Murder, She Wrote people really weren't on board with it. But they were like, OK, if we are going to do it, it's going to end with Murder, She Wrote, because Magnum, across his you know various episodes, sometimes he succeeds, sometimes he doesn't. That's it's you know, it's not um, a whodunit. So what happens mm-hmm. with him, you know, kind of fluctuates depending on the needs of the episode. But Murder, She Wrote is always a whodunit. And by design, Jessica always mm-hmm. has to solve the mystery. So her episode had to go second, they believed, so that she could, you know, discover the killer. And so what we get then, mm-hmm. I think is funny, is that we get Magnum bouncing around for 40 minutes, like actually being a really really bad at his job yeah you know he follows people and then he loses them and he doesn't get license plates um he goes to this mysterious company that he's seen the young woman he's following go to and uh the next thing he knows they're actually recording everything he's saying and playing it back to him to show that he's a big fat liar so he kind of sucks at investigating in this yeah that's what struck me as i was watching it i mean aside from the fact that like i i was anticipating the the jessica fletcher part like Mm-hmm. I found that, like, the plot of the Magnum episode seemed kind of beside the point. Like, it's just the fun of spending time with Magnum yep. and Higgins and their spatting and, you know, and seeing Jessica brought into this universe. That seemed to me to be more of what the episode was asking yep. us to take pleasure in, as opposed to the plot, which just seemed sort of inconsequential. 
It also makes me wonder what's in it for the Magnum people because it's their world still. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, Jessica comes to Hawaii, which makes sense again narratively with Murder, She Wrote, because she's always traveling. Um, and the production actually went to Hawaii to do it. And uh, like, what would have been like if Magnum had been in Cabot Cove for some Ooh. reason, right? Like, I don't know how they ever could have plausibly set that up, but wouldn't that have been interesting? That would have been, I I would have been extremely fascinated to see mm-hmm. the, the sort of ball of chaos that right. end, up, end up in quiet stayed Cabot Cove. Like, that would just be... Exactly. If only we could go back in time and, and pitch that idea. I'm sure it was discussed, but I'm sure they decided that would not work at all, but... Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, it makes, as you say, it makes more sense for Jessica to go there. Mm-hmm. But what but what interested me about the Magnum episode is that, of course, it has Magnum's voiceover. Yeah. But the, the Murder, She Wrote episode does not. So it's it's a really fascinating sort of interplay between these two episodes that they're so quintessentially of, of their, their own, own universes. Mm-hmm. But yet work to... So, I mean, there is a strange alchemy that allows them to work together surprisingly mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it doesn't feel jarring to have jb fletcher come down the stairs although i have to say i love that entrance i love the way that she just sort of effortlessly glides into you know the she comes down the stairs it's like coming down the stairs for the prom or something and everyone stops and looks at her and it's like she's here and then of course the fun of it is she's not a professional investigator and also everyone thought well magnum definitely thought it was going to be a man and it's very much not a man Right, and I love the, the I love everything that happens about their meeting and about what happens afterward. The fact that Higgins is like completely starstruck by JB, oh. like he comes in and he's like all dirty from yes. gardening. I don't, I can't remember the flower, but then you know, there's this instant rapport between Jessica and Higgins. Do you think he has a crush on her, or do you think he admires her novels, or do you think it's both? Well. I think he has a crush on her. I mean, her. I guess that depends on how queer we think Higgins is. And this is for all of our drinks. Well, first of all, I think that Magin- Magnum and Higgins are very queer uh, for all of our good fans uh-huh. out there. Like, they are definitely a queer couple. But they're also not a queer couple in that I'm pretty sure Higgins has, like, a massive crush on Jessica. Right. But I think it's the kind of crush that I have, like, that I have on Kate Blanchett. Like, would I, like, I ask Kate Blanchett to step on my face? <laughs> so he's just like the... Yes, I would. Um, obviously. But... <laughs> it's just, like, some weird, like, gay diva fetish. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's pretty clear. Everything from, like, the, the following <laughs> scene where he has the table set up and he has, like, this elaborate table setting and then he has this flower that's meant like in the south you know the south seas that's meant to signify you know when someone you're welcoming someone into your house like if that is not diva worship to a t then i don't know what is like that's just higgins being higgins he's always like that he's very formal well, I know, and very gracious yes, to everyone but magnum yeah, well of course but i mean the, but even for higgins this seems a bit excessive well, and let's talk about the lunch where he, uh, Jessica's like, great, I'd love to have lunch. Let's have Magnum too. So Higgins sets the table so there's no room. And Magnum's off in the corner eating off a TV tray. <laughs> I, I literally laughed out loud. <laughs> That's the fun of the show, though, is that he's always getting dumped on. Um, and he has to sort of rise to the challenge. I mean, the other plot that is completely immaterial to the murder she wrote second half and is totally dropped is that um there's a subplot with his two best friends tc and rick 
who are trying to get him to invest in a property in Maui that they can then turn into a hotel. Uh, But Magnum always has money problems. That's part of that narrative world is that he he never has money. And so he can't get a loan. And they're like giving him a hard time that he can't get the money together for this investment. And they really, really need it. But then eventually we see them in Maui and the property is like, it's a wreck. It's like rocky nothingness that'll never be a beautiful resort. Um, And so it actually works out really well that he didn't have the money to help them out. Yeah. And they're completely trying to bullshit him like that. Yeah, it's great here. It's beautiful. beautiful. I'm I'm, I'm on the phone with the other investors. It's like, can you imagine using your own best friend like that? Like if I called you and I was like trying to get you to give me money for some bullshit, like you're my best friend. I wouldn't do that to you. Right. I mean, that's something you deserve. Like you reserve that for your second or third tier friends. Like. (laughs) People that you went to. So what you're saying is that Magnum thinks he's a lot closer to TC and Rick than TC and Rick think. I mean, clearly. I mean, but it's all part and parcel of the fun world of Magnum PI, is. where he is always getting dumped on, right. uh, which is great because in Murder She Wrote, Jessica is always the hero, and so she, of course she can arrive and save the day. Yes, I mean, I I like that you point out how fun Magnum is. Like, I agree with you that there's something oh, yeah. just innately fun about that show like everything from the, the you know the, the helicopter rides and the sports cars and the, the action sequences and obviously we, as, we, as we said Selleck and and Higgins like it's just a show that is just unadulterated like sugar ride sugar rush fun like and I think that that's just what really drew me in as someone who's a you know a sort of more casual encounter with the with the show than than you are I will say not always. I mean, there um, part of what makes it such a legendary show is that it it plays with genre a lot. There are episodes that are comedic. There are episodes that are melodrama. There are episodes that are noir, um, much like Murder She Wrote, you know. But but um, one of the part of the backstory is that Magnum was an ex Navy SEAL, mm. uh, and he was in Vietnam, and so he there's a lot of episodes that are really dark and just sad about the sort of legacy of Vietnam trauma. Mm. Um, the show dives into that quite a bit, but it, it definitely has lighthearted comedic episodes. Like there's one with Carol Burnett that is just like, oh you pee your pants funny. And um, this is, I think this is one that's, you know, lighthearted as well. So what you're saying is that we should have a spinoff p- podcast of Murder of the Cavaco Gazette that's focused on Mac and P.I. <laughs> I mean, honey, if you wanted to do that, you know I would be in for that in a heartbeat. <laughs> Yeah, so once we get through the 8,000 seasons of Murder, <laughs> Can we talk for a second about um, the, let's talk a little bit about the three women and what we learn of them in the Magnum episode before we move to the Murder, She Wrote episode, because <sighs> mm-hmm. I don't like any of them. Yeah, I was also struck by how unpalatable they are. (laughs) No, we've definitely seen this in um, Murder, She Wrote episodes before that Jessica has friends and we're like, why are you friends with these people? Why are you trying to help them? And that's definitely the sense I got here. I mean, so so essentially Pamela knows Robin because they're both writers, which is ostensibly how she also knows Jessica. Um, But Pamela, like, uh, the first thing we see is that she invites Joan and Amy to stay at the estate, but Robin isn't there. Robin's never there. That's part of Magnum P.I. We never see him. It's a mystery who he really is. But, like, she just invites her friends to stay there. Like, that's not her job. It's not her house. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she's just so, like, cranky to Magnum. She thinks he's, like, scruffy, you know, like, loser guy who's totally incompetent. And um, she basically kind of lies about what threats 
I think, you know, are opposed to her until finally Jessica is like, what is going on? Like, nobody can help protect you from whatever threat you think is out there unless you tell us what you, you know, why you think someone would be trying to kill you. And then we have Joan, Jessica Walter, who's Mm -hmm. like, as you said, a man eater and then ultimately a murderer. So we've got that. But even before we know she's a murderer, Teach, in the Magnum episode, she just, like, sneaks off and is gone for, like, a day and doesn't tell anyone where she's going or why and is super cagey when she gets back. Right. And then picks up a guy on the beach who was in an episode of The Golden Girls, ironically enough. He was, yep. Uh, Father but, Leahy. But... I, I, don't you think that's just such weird behavior it if is. you guys are fearing for your lives that you just sort of vanish and don't tell anyone where you're going? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is very much uh, the kind of presumptuous behavior one expects of a person like that, someone who, you know, has more money than sense sometimes. And like, you know, she clearly doesn't really have much respect for her, you know, friends to not inform them where she's going for hours at a time. Or, you know, as you said, almost an entire day. And we also have Amy, the who is supposed to be Joan's secretary, um, we ultimately learn that she's run away from an abusive husband and she's taken her grandmother's diamonds to start a new life with the money. And so that's why she's being secretive and cagey. So I guess we can give her a pass. Be- like she lies and she's being weird, but I guess ultimately it's like out of fear for her own safety in a way that it's not for the other two women. So maybe she gets mm-hmm. a pass, but she also lies and she like runs off and stays at a different motel at one point. Um, I mean, it's just weird. It's just very weird behavior. And I'm like, I, what is with you three ladies anyway? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when Jessica comes in, as often, I wonder, I'm like, why are you trying to help them? Why did you fly halfway across the world to help these people out? Yeah, it's very it's very passing and strange. And also what's strange is the guy that Joan picks up on the beach is like, hey, why don't you all come over to my place for a party? I don't know. I'm just one of those people who's like, I don't like strangers <laughs> okay. in my house. And I would just be very like hesitant to invite people that I don't know <laughs> to a party. It's just very well. Weird. He in, but it's a party that has tons of people, and it's a party on an estate, not in his house. That's very different. Well, I know that's what rich people that. do. You know, I guess maybe that's just the you know the simple country person in me. I'm just like, eh. <laughs> yeah, we're just not on board with my criticism on that regard. <laughs> well, what I think was weird about it is that it's all presented as if she just happened to meet this guy on the beach right. that night. But, of course, he's intimately connected with the office company where Amy – Magnum had seen Amy go and, you know, he ultimately – anyway, yeah. And the guy who was tailing Amy that Magnum thinks might be a professional killer shows up at the party and they're all just like, oh, that's the guy. It's like, the, I would be a lot more alarmed than you guys. And then Higgins is like, you know what we should do? We should stay for a half an hour to see if the killer tries to make another attempt. That's a good yeah, way to flush him out. <laughs> No, you should go home and hide. What are you doing? Right, it's just like, yeah, it, it's that whole that whole sequence is just like I said. The plot of this scene is rather nonsensical to me, which is again, I don't care necessarily, yeah. but I'm just sort of like, what is happening? Like, what uh, uh, you know? I just have these perplexed look on it's my wild. face while I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, am I missing something, or is it supposed to just be like you know a wild and crazy ride? That's just you sign up, you just fasten your seatbelt and just go along with it. Fasten your seatbelts. It's a bumpy night. And then I think part of the fun, too, is like throughout all of this nonsense, Magnum is obviously deeply concerned for these women's safety. And even Higgins, because at one point Higgins thinks that maybe the assassin is after him because he used to be involved in like government spy operations. So he's like, you don't know what kind of past I've had. Right. So so, um, 
Magnum is deeply concerned that somebody is after somebody, but yet the whole like fun shtick is that um, everyone keeps saying he's not been hired to the case, he's not on the case, and Magnum is saying, I don't want the case. And then he gets mad when they say you're not on it. And then when they say you are on it, he says, you know, he's so we keep flip flopping back and forth between what Magnum's role actually is, which is part of the right. Fun. And he goes on at length at that lunch that we mentioned earlier. He's like, well, I'm not on the case. <laughs> well, clearly he is because he brings a gun to this right. party and is looking around trying to find this killer guy. And then ultimately he and the killer have a shootout. Killer ends up dead right as the police arrive, and of course Magnum gets arrested, mm-hmm. and that's our end of part one. Well, it does, but he gets arrested like in the interim, like between the two episodes, right? Well, the police—I mean, the police show up as the end. Right. of They say you're under arrest, and that's the to be continued. Okay, right. Yeah, because it's like, well, how is he going to get out of that? Well, clearly yeah. Jessica's going to get him out of it in murder. Yes, Shiro. exactly. Mm-hmm. Which is a good setup for you know JB to have something to do other than just be the glamorous accompaniment that she already is. That's true because in the first, in the Magnum episode, she's, um, she's not very helpful to the investigation. Although she does have a new book that Magnum wants to read. Let's talk about that for a second. Magnum thought J.B. Fletcher, the famous author, was a man. Mm-hmm. Many people often do, which is weird because her picture's on the book. It's like it has it, but I mean, I'm assuming if it's like the old style of of mystery novels, like her picture is like either on the back flap or emblazoned across the entire back cover. We see it on the back cover in other episodes. We know, and she also was like on talk shows and stuff. So he's just not paying attention. That's fine. Um, A very credulous reader, apparently. Yeah. And then he, uh, he tells her that he started to read a book once. But he didn't finish it because he could already figure out who the killer was. And then she's like, now actually you're wrong. The killer was this other guy. Mm-hmm. It's a lovely little tense moment between them. Yeah. And I love the rapport between Lansbury and Selleck. Like, it's just really fun to watch these two, not just these two characters, but these two performers in the same scenes together. Like, it's just, there's, a, there's a very good chemistry, I think, between them that kind of leaps out at you. Really? That's funny because uh, she didn't like working with him. I'm not surprised by that. Like that, I, I, that's just from what you've told me about Lansbury in your research, but I can also just speculate just what I know that those two would probably not be, you know, they wouldn't be having drinks after the show. Let's put it that way. So they, um, they went to Hawaii to film this and, uh, his, so his crew is responsible for shooting episode one and lots of the scenes are outdoors. It's hot. It's Hawaii. She's wearing suits. And they have, as she tells it, you know, I'm sure his team has a different story, but as she tells it, his crew had a very different process for shooting that she found to be uh, way too lax. And so Mm. she would be left sitting in her chair in the sun, like waiting for um, Selleck to show up so they could get started or waiting for the people to fix things. And she was just like, I can't, like, you're just wasting everybody's time. You're wasting my time. And I'm like melting in my makeup. So she was like, this is, you guys don't have your shit together the way that my crew does. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I said you, I mean, I guess that's a testament to their, you know, to their professionalism mm-hmm. that they nevertheless managed to produce such a, a good episode and have such obvious rapport mm-hmm. that, you know, even though there's all this backstage drama, like that's the mark of true professionalism right mm-hmm. there. Definitely. You know, we, it occurs to me that we've seen Jessica work with private investigators many times, like especially mm-hmm. Harry, uh, Harry McGraw was our first one, right? 
And um, we've definitely seen her have to work with someone who enters a world that's a lot darker than the one she lives in with much more gun violence, which is true of Magnum. Um, And I think, but I think what's fun here is there's, um, there's moments where we see the two of them like in sync. And then there's moments where we very clearly see their different processes and there's like real Mm -hmm. tension between them. Uh, and I think it's it's gendered. I think it's age. She's older than him. And then it's also that, you know, as he says one, at one point, you know, you think like a novelist. So you're looking for like little tiny clues on the page and trying to be observant and like criminology is different. It's like you whip out your gun and you chase someone, you know. And so I think there's real fun to be had with um, just their different approaches to investigating mm-hmm. and the the moments of tension that we find between the two of them because of that. Yeah, no, I I like that reading. And I think that's also one of the things that like a mashup or not mashup. Well, I guess it is a mashup, but a crossover um, really sort of enables is to bring together this kind of cure, these different, very different energies to kind of affect mm-hmm. what you're describing. This, you know, this mixing of not just genres, but very different, like, I don't want to be essentialist, but there's very different gender, as you like you alluded to, like very different sort of gender dynamics at work with these genres of the, you know, the sort of action show versus the more comfort cozy mystery so that you know there's an opportunity there for them to even to be these sort of moments of almost self-free flexivity where it's calling attention to the conventions that it's orchestrating that's going to do it for part one of our examination of the magnum pi murder she wrote crossover you'll have to stay tuned next week to the cabot cove gazette for the conclusion of this conversation but for now i'm bridget keys and i'm tj west and we'll see you next time Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.